Welcome to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast on the new executive order on regulatory relief, a trump card to play against the government. I'm Dan Mulholland and with me is Henry Cassell. On May 19, 2020, that's 10 days ago from when we're recording, President Trump issued Executive Order 13924 to remove regulatory barriers to economic recovery from the effects of the coronavirus lockdowns throughout the country. The order primarily directs federal agencies to address the current economic emergency by rescinding, modifying, waiving, or providing exemptions from regulations and other requirements that may inhibit recovery. But as we are going to explore in the next few minutes, it goes a lot farther than that. Right, Henry? Right, Dan. It's interesting that the executive order started out by talking about the COVID-19 virus and the effect that virus has had on the economy. Now that the country is starting to open up and that we're starting to see more economic activity, uh, there were a number of waivers that were in effect while the national public health emergency was in effect. And so what the president is doing is directing the heads of agencies to look to see which of those waivers can be kept in place or regulations could be changed, modified, rescinded to allow for and enhance economic activity. The problem with the order is, of course, the fact that regulatory agencies are bound by the statute and they have to follow the statute. They just can't get rid of regulations for the sake of doing so or just because the president told them to. However, Regulatory agencies do have a tremendous amount of discretion, and they can look to see what regulations were rescinded or waived or just not enforced during the last several months and make an administrative determination that they would like to continue those waivers and rescind those regulations permanently if doing so will help stimulate economic growth. That's right, Henry. You know, the the executive order makes it clear that whatever the agencies are going to do has to be consistent with existing law, and they're bound by the statute. But the idea of not only getting rid of um, regulations, but exercising temporary enforcement discretion, or even giving extensions of time to people who are regulated to maybe, you know, come up with some new solution to a problem is, I think, a big step in the right direction. And one of the things that is of particular interest to hospitals and doctors is the enforcement that's gone on for the last couple decades under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark regulations, in particular the Stark regulations. Last October, CMS issued some proposed changes that were really a radical departure from the rather Stalinist approach that had been taken under the Stark law. And the OIG did the same things under the anti-kickback statute, safe harbor regulations, proposed a lot of new changes that would lighten the load that those statutes have on hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare providers. Those proposed changes are pending, but it would seem to me that the executive order would be something that could accelerate the issuance of final regulations under the Stark rules and the Uh, anti-kickback safe harbors that maybe would make them even more provider friendly in the future. We'll have to wait and see about that, but I think that those regulatory changes are consistent with the ideas that President Trump had in this executive order. And I agree with you, Dan. The October 17, uh, 2019 proposed rules were 
as you say, significant advancement when it comes to pr making the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute more provider-friendly. They provided a concrete examples. They broke the law down into its elements, and they were, quite frankly, very helpful from a number of perspectives. But they're only proposed rules, and they are not the law unless promulgated in final form. The comment period ended on December 31st, which was before all of this began, and so CMS was supposed to be working on final regulations throughout 2020. Now, I would imagine with all of the waivers and other regulatory guidance that they have um, been issuing during the national uh, public health emergency that those regulations may have been sidelined or put on a back burner. However, I think this executive order will bring them back to the front burner because of the fact that they do exactly what this executive order wants them to do, which is to make the Stark Law more provider friendly and make it so that it does not interfere with uh, commerce to the extent that it has in the past. Yeah, and I think consistent with that is the directives in this executive order for agencies to uh, be proactive in giving pre-enforcement rulings on uh, whether or not a particular conduct might violate the law. And that was something that was in uh, an executive order that was issued around the same time as the proposed Stark and anti-kickback safe harbor changes in October of 2019. It's executive order 13892. And among other things, that encouraged the use of pre-enforcement rulings, which are formal written communications from an agency about whether certain proposed conduct would violate the law or not. Of course, the Stark rules have, as the anti-kickback statute uh, provides, for advisory opinions that you could get either from the CMS under Stark or the OIG under the anti-kickback uh, safe harbors. And that might be another tool that's a lot easier to use than it had been in the past. But the real center of attention in this executive order are the so-called principles of fairness in administrative enforcement and adjudication. The order goes through about 10 different principles that I think are worth talking about because those can be applied in real-life situations when you're dealing with the government. So Henry, there's one that's really intriguing about the burden of proof, right? Right, and this is something that we raised in our comments to the proposed regulations. And you know, the analysis of Stark begins whether or not the Stark law applies. Stark will apply if uh, there's a financial arrangement or compensation arrangement between a entity that provides a designated health service, such as a hospital that provides inpatient or outpatient services, and a physician or immediate family member. So Stark applies to almost every compensation arrangement um, that a hospital will enter into with a doctor. The question is whether or not you fit within an exception, and some of the exceptions are broad and easy to fit within. Some of them are more narrow and a little more difficult. However, the Stark law is not violated unless you have a compensation arrangement and you don't fit within an exception, and that's axiomatic, and that's the, the way it works in the statute and the way uh, the regulations have always been promulgated. What we have urged CMS to opine on and what this executive order seems to support our comment, which is that 
the burden of proof should be on the government or in most cases enforcing the anti-kickback or the Stark law on the Quitam relator who's trying to use the law as a way to enforce the Federal False Claims Act. And what generally happens is that the courts have had the shifting burden of proof where the plaintiff, the government or the Ketam relator only has to allege that the Stark applied and an exception uh, wasn't satisfied. The burden then shifts to the defendant, the hospital or the other provider, to prove that you actually fit within an exception, which the courts have interpreted as a affirmative defense, which can only be raised at a later part in the litigation process. What our belief is, and what this executive order seems to enforce, is that the plaintiff the government or the Ketam relator should bear the burden of proof, not only of Stark applied, but that an exception was not complied with. And that should allow a defendant to raise the defense that we just did what the law said and we fit within an exception much earlier than is currently permitted under the law, under the court's interpretation of Stark. So we requested that CMS include commentary in the preamble to the final rules, and it seems to be supported by this executive order that the plaintiff must plead sufficient facts with particularity needed to satisfy the heightened pleading standards of Rule 9 of the federal civil rules of procedure that the the entity providing the designated health services failed to satisfy an exception to the Stark Law as an essential element of a prima facie case and not require the defendant to wait until a later stage in the in the litigation to raise that defense. Yeah, now, you know, this executive order, like every executive order, has a caveat that it's not intended to and does not create any right or benefit on behalf of anybody against the United States. However, it's worth raising the principles in here whenever either you're in court and you take a shot that the judge might buy that argument, even if they don't amend the regulations the way Henry said, or certainly when you're dealing with the government. Another principle is administrative enforcement should be prompt or fair. So if you have a situation where you're served with a civil investigative demand and you're not really sure what happened other than somebody's probably sued you under the False Claims Act and it takes a good while to produce the documents the government wants, then it just sits in the Department of Justice for months and months. This could be used to say, hey, guys, let's you know, decide what to do or you know, maybe you ought to just abandon this case because the president's telling you you have to be uh, prompt and fair in doing that. The same thing with adjudicators being independent of the enforcement staff, right, Henry? Right, Dan. And this would be especially interesting to see how the Office of Inspector General addresses this through the anti-kickback statute because there you always had a combination of enforcement and adjudicatory authority. Uh, what they want now is for more independence so that the people who are making the allegation that you violated the law should not then be in a position to judge whether or not you are compliant, which is actually permitted under administrative law, but this executive order is trying to separate those two functions as, and they really should be separate, and uh, require the government wants to claim that you've done something wrong than to allow an independent administrative adjudicator to resolve that allegation. Yeah, the same goes for the principle that says the government should provide favorable relevant evidence in their possession to the subject of an enforcement action. This is something you see time and again 
where there's an investigation going on and all you know is what is in the documents you provided to the government or what witnesses that you've produced have said, and the government won't even tell you who else they're interviewing or what they may have to say, and that might be helpful to you. That goes along with another principle that administrative enforcement should be free of unfair surprise. So to the extent you're into a really heavy-duty investigation that might be um, a prelude to unsealing a False Claims Act case, I think it's fair to ask the government, all right, show us all your cards, because we want to see everything you have. And the president said you're supposed to do that. We don't want to be blindsided at the end where you move to unseal and file a complaint against us with all sorts of things we didn't know about that perhaps we could have addressed during the investigative stage. And this executive order is very consistent with the October uh, executive order that you mentioned a little earlier, where the rules of evidence and procedure should be public, clear, and effective. The biggest frustration in dealing with the application of the False Claims Act to the Medicare program is the fact that the CMS uses a lot of sub-regulatory guidance to determine whether something should be paid, and the courts have seized upon those that sub-regulatory guidance to claim that if you didn't follow it, then you were somehow or other violating the False Claims Act. These Both of these executive orders should make it a make it much more difficult for a the government or, again, a key TAM relator to rely on sub-regulatory guidance, and they must instead base their claim on regulations that have gone through the notice and comment period required by the Administrative Procedures Act. That's right. Then the order goes on to say, penalties should be proportionate, transparent, and imposed in adherence with standards authorized by law, going along with you said, Henry, they shouldn't be able to rely on these double-secret sub-regulatory guidance documents, and it should be free of improper government coercion. That's one of the big problems that you have if you have a False Claims Act case that involves the Stark Law. The potential penalties are astronomical, and that in and of itself can lead to what you know a lot of people feel is improper government coercion. Settle with us now or face hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. So that's another thing that is in this order that could be used to say, wait a minute, maybe the Stark Law, the way it works, is way out of kilter, and if you're looking at enforcing it uh, under the False Claims Act, maybe you ought to look at alternate ways to calculate potential damages, like maybe only looking at every cost report as a claim as opposed to every single time you do a lab test. That creates a uh, bigger uh, burden. Absolutely, Dan. And and that's been the frustration with the Stark Law from the beginning, the disproportionality of the penalty to the uh, action that allegedly violated the law. You forget to have a written agreement uh, with a doctor that refers millions of dollars of inpatient and outpatient hospital services, and you have a multi-million dollar judgment or potential liabilities for a simple administrative failure. So this I don't know how they're going to square this administrative order with the reality of how Stark and the False Claims Act have been enforced over the last several years. But if the government could get together to, as you say, more clearly define what constitutes a claim or perhaps somehow decouple the False Claims Act 
from Stark that would be a tremendous benefit to providers, would not adversely affect the government's ability to pursue true fraud and abuse, and would make the penalties for violating Stark more in line and proportionate with the uh, actions that gave rise to the violation. So the bottom line is, folks, we're not really sure what will happen with the executive order, although from the standpoint of playing poker with the government, it's a nice trump card to have in your hand to be able to play if the appropriate time uh, arises. So hopefully this has been helpful to you in terms of giving you some ideas about how this executive order might help. And stay tuned for further developments. Probably the best thing to do is get on Twitter and see what the president has to say tomorrow. To the extent that they let him say it. Thank you. <laughs>